So Matthew 5, 1, this is the word of our Lord. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us your word, and you've given us your spirit. We pray that he would wield your word this morning. And speak to our hearts through the proclamation of your word. For asking Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For centuries now, people from all walks of life have uh, said that the Sermon on the Mount provide good stuff to live by. That the Sermon on the Mount is a good summary that, for, uh, that we should follow. Uh, As I've said before, Thomas Jefferson, when he decided to uh, edit the Bible, he decided that he had the know-how, the authority to read through the New Testament and decide what was the Word of God and what wasn't. He eventually ended up with the Sermon on the Mount. He thought that was good stuff for everybody. Now, some would say, I don't need this cross and salvation stuff. Just give me the Sermon on the Mount. The problem is that the Sermon on the Mount does not work for somebody who has not been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is impossible to follow it if you're not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. If you have not been born again by the power of the Spirit, this, this sermon is an impossibility. How are you going to be perfect as God is perfect, as Jesus tells us to be at the end of chapter 6? How are you going to live a life without anger and murder towards others, apart from the work of the Spirit in your hearts? So this liberal and humanist love for the Sermon on the Mount is without basis. The Sermon on the Mount is not a feel-good sermon. It tells us that a sword will be brought that's going to divide father from son, mother from mother, families. It tells us that we are to cut off our right arm if it causes us to sin. That we are to pluck out our left eye if it causes us to sin. So it's not a feel-good sermon for us to uh, feel-good sermon for us to live by. It is really for those who've been regenerated by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the beatitude before us proves that. Do you notice there verses 10 through 12? Blessed are those who are persecuted. Rejoice exceedingly when you're persecuted, when people revile. No, thank you. That's not for me. And 
we can't do that apart from the work of the Spirit. Now the Sermon on the Mount can only be lived by those who have been brought into the kingdom of God. Otherwise, it's impossible to follow it. And as we read these 12 verses, did you notice how this last beatitude is different from the other ones? Do you notice that instead of, descri- instead of describing a quality or a characteristic, it describes a circumstance, the one of being persecuted? Now, when you hear that, blessed are you when you're persecuted, does it surprise you? Should it surprise us that the citizens of the kingdom of God suffer persecution in direct, direct relationship to their love for righteousness? Again, uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his little book on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, We follow a crucified Savior. We should not think it strange, therefore, if we ourselves encounter fiery trials. We are called to be made in His image. We are called to follow in His way, and so we will follow in the way of opposition. Let me ask you this. Should... Why should we be surprised at, at the persecution that we may suffer when our Lord was called a Samaritan, was called an illegitimate child, was called demon-possessed by His own people? Why should we be surprised if we face persecution for righteousness' sake when Christ's own people came up with trumped-up trumped up charges? That he was coming to usurp authority from Caesar in order to get him crucified. How can we be surprised when the world treats us so, when the world persecutes us? For so we are disciples of Christ. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, we should be concerned when there's no persecution in our lives. The world hates Jesus. Do you get that? The world hates Jesus. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, you hate Jesus. As simple as that. There's no neutral. And the world hates Jesus. And we are united with him. Therefore, the world hates us. We do not live in a friendly place. The Lord himself told us that several times. For example, in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 21 and 22, he says, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Was it clear enough here? That even the most sacred bonds, the bonds of family, will be destroyed because of hatred To Jesus Christ? That's not the only time he says that. In John 15, verses 18 and 20, the last time he's speaking to his disciples, and he says, If the world hates you, you know that he hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And you might say, you know what? He's only talking to the disciples, to the apostles. They're not talking to us. Well, do we accept 1 John, the letter, 1 John as a letter to the church, to us? 
Well, this is what John says, referring back to John 15 in 1 John. It says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. That's the world we live in. Let's not make false pretenses that the world is our friend. Let's not make false pretenses that they are welcoming of us or that they are even seeking Jesus. Because according to our, to our Lord, the world hates him. So this is a different beatitude that talks about the state being persecuted instead of a characteristic. But also this is a different beatitude from the others in that it changes from the third person plural to the second person. It goes from they to you. And, and there's a reason for that. This is a shocking beatitude. So to make the point more vivid, Jesus switches from the general they to you. You will be persecuted. It's almost as if Jesus is pointing a big finger at us. You will be persecuted. So he makes it way more specific than the other Beatitudes. And it's also different because, I don't know if you noticed, that Beatitude repeats the blessing from the first Beatitude. Possession of the kingdom of, of heaven. The, the, the same thing that's promised to the poor in spirit is promised to the persecuted. For theirs, for yours, shall be the kingdom of heaven. And that indicates the end of this session. It is what scholars call an inclusio. It marks that this is a separate section from what follows. This is a description of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This is not the description of special Christians, but description of each one of us as we have come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now think about it for a second. As far as the, the original audience is concerned. Those that are sitting right there on the mount as Jesus is proclaiming uh, these words to them. The last beatitude brings an anticlimactic conclusion to this section of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed is the peacemaker. Blessed are those who mourn for shall be comforted. And the last one, you know, going to leave with a bang. It says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Be excited about that, Jesus says. And you can see the crowd going, aww. That's not really what we're expecting here. This is not a good conclusion. Did you go to seminary to learn how to conclude a, a sermon? That's not how we should conclude. And especially for the audience of that time. Because it was a common belief among the Jews of that time that all suffering, including persecution, was an indication of God's displeasure. Because those suffering or those being persecuted had been judged by God to be wicked. So when Jesus ends and says, blessed are you when you're persecuted, there was this cultural feeling among them that Jesus was calling them wicked, which he did several times, but not here. That's not what he's doing. It's interesting that the first century Jew believed that the Old Testament spoke of two different messiahs. They were not able to distinguish between the first and second coming of Jesus from the Old Testament. But, but they would read passages about this triumphant Messiah that was going to conquer the nations. And then he also, they would also read passages about the suffering Messiah. So they came up with a the theology of the Messiah saying that if we're really good, we're going to have a conquering Messiah. But if we're bad, then we're going to have a suffering Messiah. Now guess what they thought of themselves? They thought they were really good. So they're expecting this conquering Messiah. So when Jesus comes, 
and he comes to suffer, he says, no, we don't want anything to do with you, Jesus, because our Messiah is going to be a conquering Messiah. Because of this idea that only bad people suffer. This idea that only bad people are persecuted. We see that example in Luke 13, when a group of people come and talk to Jesus and says, hey, how about those Galileans? That the tower fell on top of them. How bad were they? And Jesus says, you don't get it. There's nothing to do with how bad they were. But the glory of God. Isn't that what he says to the blind, to the disciples when in John 9, they come and question, uh, Jesus, this blind man over here, is he blind because of the sins of his parents or because of his own sin? And Jesus says something that's very difficult for us to hear. Remember what he says? He is blind for my glory. Can you imagine that? If you have a life debilitating disease that's not brought upon you because of sinful living, God tells you that is upon you because that brings me glory. Your cancer brings me glory. Your arthritis brings me glory. Your diabetes, type 1 diabetes, brings me glory. Can you live with that? So this, this uh, may have been a very anticlimactic ending to this portion of the, of the Beatitudes. Because what Christ does is actually changes completely their paradigm. And that suffering here is a result of faithfulness, not of wickedness. What God is saying to us through Jesus, through His Word, is... That if you're faithful, expect to suffer persecution. Can you think of any other religion that promises that? That your troubles in life will be equated to how faithful you are to your God. Now look at it and see the actions in this beatitude that marks the blessing. Who are the ones blessed? In verse 10... He tells us that those that are blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And it is, it is very important to keep in mind that it's not any type of persecution that Jesus calls a blessing or that blessings will come upon them. It is specific kind of persecution, a persecution for righteousness' sake. We are often persecuted because of our own stupidity. We're persecuted because of our own sinfulness. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that what glory comes when you suffer because you deserve to suffer. The glory comes when you're suffering for something that you should not suffer for. For example, remember in the book of Acts, Acts 16, Silas and Paul are, are in prison, shackled in a dungeon because they cast out an evil spirit out of a woman. And because of that righteous act, because of righteousness, they were imprisoned. And remember what they were doing there at midnight in the dungeon? They were singing psalms and hymns to the Lord. Who likes church history here? I love church history. Uh, I love church history. That's probably my, my, as far as subjects, my biggest passion I love languages too. Greek is a big passion for me. But church history is, is something that I enjoy. I have to be careful not to be only reading church history books. To read other books. Or history in general. If you spend any time on the history of the church. You will see that the history of the church can be told through the sufferings of the saints. 
the persecution of the saints. Throughout the centuries, Christians have been well acquainted with persecution for righteousness' sake. One, a big name that all of us remember is Nero. He was nothing compared to other persecutors, but he did some bad things. One of the things you do in the second half of his reign when he became a very bad emperor, he would crucify Christians and would line the road up to his house with Christians crucified. And while they were still alive, he would light them on fire to provide lighting for his parties. And he would do that because they were Christians. You don't have to go all the way back to the beginning of the apostolic church. You can go back to, let's say, the reign of Charles II in, in England, where he persecuted to death the Covenanters in Scotland. Interesting that one of the things that Charles II did is forbade them from worshiping in their own buildings. Uh, but he did put armed guards in their own in their buildings. So what did the Presbyterian Covenanters did? They worshipped outside through fall, winter, and spring. And this is Scotland. If you talk to Doug Bond, he'll take you on a tour of Scotland, and you'll see how that is pertinent to the conversation. But we don't have to go that far back. Remember a few years ago, the well-known, uh, now publicized video of ISIS operatives beheading Christians because they were Christians? where they lined up them all on the sandy shore and video them having their heads chopped because of their faith in Christ. Who was born here during the 20th century, 1900s? Not, not like 19, but who was... Okay, raise your, hand, uh, raise your hand up. Keep your hand up, please. There, look around. Keep your hand up, look around. You were born in the bloodiest century for Christians in the history of the world. More Christians were killed for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than adding all the Christians were killed before that. So the history of the church can be told by the history of the persecution of their saints. And what does, how does Christ call those people? Blessed, happy, joyful. This uh, beatitude is also different than the other ones. And, and it tells us that we are blessed when people revile us. In verse 11. Now reviling is reproaching, insulting, mocking. And we should expect that. Our Savior Himself was mocked by the Roman soldiers with a crown of thorn and, and a purple robe. He was mocked by the religious leaders while He was on the cross. said, oh, he, if He says He's God, let Him jump off of that cross. He, was, he has gone through all of that. And brothers and sisters, because He has gone through that, He can carry us through the reviling that we face. We don't have to fear men. He also says that we are blessed when we are slandered for the sake of righteousness. To be slandered is to have something that's false said against you. A lie against you because you are a believer. Our Savior was condemned to the cross because of slander. And Christians have been falsely accused throughout the, the ages. For example, early on in the history of the apostolic, of, of the apostolic church, of the Christian church... 
Christians were accused of incest. Why do you think that is the case? Why do you think the world would accuse Christians of incest? Well, what is one of the most popular terms in the New Testament for us to refer to one another? Brothers, sisters. And the world will see brothers and sisters getting married and they had issues with that. Christians were accused of being atheists. You say, how can that be? Well, because Christians refused to worship any other God but the God of the Bible. Christians were, were accused of being disloyal to the ruling authorities, to being intolerant. All those things were slandered. Now, it is important that the persecution itself is not a blessing. But what follows from the persecution. You need to notice that it's not the persecution that is important. That, that's a blessing. It's what follows from that. Is the possession of the kingdom of God. We, a few weeks ago, concluded our early church history class here at the church. One of the, one of the people we studied in that class was Ignatius of uh, Antioch. There's a famous Ignatius called Ignatius of Loyola. Not a good guy. That's not the one we studied. Uh, we studied Ignatius of Antioch, called an apostolic father, wrote some of the very first Christian letters outside of the New Testament. And he wrote these seven letters in order to convince the Christians that on the way from Antioch to Rome not to do anything to keep him from being a martyr. You know, he had tried his entire life to be arrested by the authorities because he was a Christian. He thought that dying as a martyr was the greatest thing ever. So he's finally arrested. He's going to be taken to Rome. And he hears that the brethren are planning ways to cause him to escape. And he writes, please don't do that. I want to be a martyr. That's not quite what Jesus is talking about here. I'm not telling you go out and seek to be persecuted. Persecution will come if you're righteous, if you're faithful. Persecution for righteousness sake brings the knowledge that we are in possession of the kingdom. That this world is not our home. Persecution helps us understand that we should not be too comfortable over here. Because that's not where we're designed to be. Persecution may, brings passages like Romans 8, when it talks about nothing being able to separate us from the love of God into light and, and, and makes them very vivid and not even being put down and slandered, mocked, insulted, reviled will not separate us from the love of God. Now, it's interesting that you notice that Jesus says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you are Persecuted. How is that possible? How can we rejoice in doing that? And it's interesting, that's not just rejoicing, it's be exceedingly glad. Some older translation says, leap for joy when you are persecuted. In order to capture the intensity of this word. How is it possible to do that? Well, brothers and sisters, persecution indicates the genuineness of our faith. The level of our being persecuted is a good way for us to measure the genuineness of our faith. When you are persecuted for righteousness sake, you're just falling on the footsteps of the prophets. That's what Jesus says in verse 12. They were faithful to God, the prophets were, so they were persecuted. You are faithful to Christ, so you are persecuted. And persecution, Jesus says, is followed by great reward in heaven. Now, this is not the reward of 
wages earned by human merit, but the reward of grace. And this reward is not in proportion to, it, it is in proportion to righteousness, but it's much greater than the sacrifice that we might go through life. God says he's going to reward us for being persecuted, but the reward is so much greater than our suffering that the suffering pales in comparison. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8? says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Now, remember the persecution that Apostle Paul went through? He was stoned to death because of his faith in Christ. He was... He was beaten with a cane at least four times, four different times, so it was 39 times each time. He was scourged and left for dead, all because of his faith in Christ. He says, the sufferings of this world just pale in comparison to the reward of heaven. Jesus, uh, the Apostle Paul again in 2 Corinthians 4 says, For our light affliction, our light, what is it that you're going through now? Persecution or otherwise? Christ calls your light Affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceedingly and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. And sometimes we, we, we struggle with rejoicing in persecution because this reward seems so small. Heaven, Christ, being in His presence, eternal life, the resurrection, those things seem so small. Because we are so attached to this world and this life. We don't rejoice because we are not convinced that eternal life before the presence of Jesus is that great. Okay, Jesus, heaven, great. What else? What real thing are you going to give me for my persecution, for my suffering? And when that thought comes in, it means that we have not really considered what heaven is and what Jesus is. Paul says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he's in this, in, in this uh, conundrum, in this debate with himself. You know, if I die, I'll go be with Jesus. That's far better than being with you, Paul says. But for your sake, I'll remain around here. Now, how does this theology, how does this beatitude fit with the current move in evangelicalism to say that this life is the best life that we are called to live the best life now that we should be worried about how to sermon so that we can live our best life now how does that match that when Jesus says you're going to be persecuted you're going to suffer and your reward is not in this life but is in the life to come how does those two things fit together this is a promise that Paul makes to Timothy. So the very last book that Paul's writing in the New Testament is about to die. It's likely that he died within weeks, maybe three weeks after writing 2 Timothy. And this is a promise he leaves with Timothy. He says, Those who seek to live a righteous life, do you know how that ends? Shall suffer persecution. There is a great enmity between the children of God and this world. And perhaps a hundred years of uh, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life sort of evangelism has caused the church to forget that we are saved by a suffering servant, by a suffering Christ, 
and we're united with him in his suffering. Now, we're almost done here, talking a lot about persecution, and you might be asking yourself, like I was asking myself when I was preparing this sermon, why am I not experiencing this persecution? I think if you're fair, if we're if we're fair, if you're honest, we're going to admit that we live very comfortably as Christians. And that's not a sin. We should not feel guilty about that. That's a good thing, right? We're, we're happy for our comforts. We also, if you're honest, will admit that we are not being persecuted like the church has through the centuries. I think that might be uh, something that's coming to uh, close, but that's where we are. Sure, we are living in a difficult climate for Christians here in the state of Washington currently, but nothing in comparison to other times and other places in, other, in history. Let me give you four possible reasons why I think we are not facing that much persecution. One is, we may not be suffering so much for the sake of Christ because we would disgrace the cause of Christ if we were persecuted. Maybe God is sparing His own glory by not blessing us with persecution. Perhaps God is protecting us and His glory by not allowing us to be blessed through persecution. Perhaps... We are not strong enough to go through persecution. And we might take Job's advice to curse God and die if we go through persecution. So that's one reason. Another reason that that perhaps we're not facing persecution is because we are not hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Perhaps there is no reason for the world to persecute us because our faith is so weak and our conduct so harmless that... Why spend the effort to persecute us when we are such like um, weak, Kool-Aid, middle-of-the-road Christians? I was going to use an expression in Portuguese. In Portuguese, when somebody in Brazil, when somebody is kind of middle of the road, not here nor there, they're called tutti frutti, <laughs> like all flavors but no flavor. That's what tutti frutti is. So maybe God is not being persecuted in our lives because we just can't, we can't stand that blessing. Maybe God's not being persecuted in our lives because we're not thirsting and hungering after our righteousness. Maybe God is not bringing persecution in our lives because we're not poor in spirit. We're not meek. We're proud people. We, we might be able to go through persecution, but we would take all the credit for persevering through it. So perhaps because of pride, we cannot bear receiving this blessing. Or perhaps we are not blessed that way because we are simply not peace, peacemakers. Did you notice that this, is, this beatitude comes right on the heels of the peacemaking one? As if, as if to say that peacemakers are persecuted because they are peacemakers? Satan and the world want those who disturb peace for the, or fake peace to continue unharmed because they are furthering Satan's cause. So if you look in your heart, are you living a life of a peacemaker? Do you, do you know the blessings that come through persecution? Do you know what it is to meet opposition for the sake of Christ? Or perhaps this, the reason that we find so little of this in our own experience is that we are not enough for righteousness to the point that the world can tell the difference between us and itself. And as long as we're relegated to the margins, 
as long as we're marginal, as long as we live a form of ghetto Christianity that makes no difference to the world, we're not going to be blessed as those that are persecuted. But if we are serious about seeking after Christ, if we're serious about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, then we'll be blessed in this life and in the life to come. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you sustain us. Father, we pray that we would be faithful to you and that we would be found worthy to suffer for your cause. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.